0: Howdy, folks, and welcome to the Memorial Day Wankathon. Guitar Wank! Lots going on here. I just want you to know that while we've all been quarantined and byzantined and mezzanined, basically I've been consumed with how to entertain you, how to inform you, and how to inspire you. Well, my cohorts, Troy's been busy harvesting toilet paper and Scott's been busy recycling it. I've been just consumed with creating content for you to make your life, if not more miserable, just better. And so, want to let you know first of all grumps TV a twice weekly TV show I'm going to do my 18th episode on Wednesday that means that we're beyond we're into like our third season in Netflix years you can get it on my YouTube channel Bruce Foreman please subscribe I'm about to hit a thousand and something magical supposedly happens then also I'm doing first chorus of the day on my Instagram account that is, I walk into my shed and I just play a chorus, record it, and send it out to all of you. Warts and all. I just pick a tune and go. And I've been getting requests. It's been a lot of fun. I do it every day. My Instagram account is at Formanism, F-O-R-M-A-N-I-S-M. Now, for you Patreon supporters of Guitar Wank, and there's not enough of you, but we really appreciate the ones you are. I have been doing... The wank minute and what that is is I'll take something that really changed my life some idea, some licks some phrase whatever some experience and I'll talk about it and just hand it to you in a minute and let you run with it because basically I'm still working on it too and that's available to all our guitar wank supporters so why don't you consider doing that next I have a new my music masterclass video out it's gonna come out today so it's the number 10 it's called hunker in the bunker and basically that's kind of the way i'm I'm just went through how i've been working on music while i've had time to be alone and really think about it there's 10 of them there they're there for your enjoyment and for your edification and if you want to eat them too that's good so There you go. That's what I've been doing while others have been harvesting toilet paper, recycling toilet paper, or smoking it. So, with that, I'm going to turn you over. Yeah, I'm going to turn you over. Anyways, and then Troy will put on some wankage that we have been carefully archiving for your personal pain and pleasure. Wank on!
1: Thanks, Bruce. Appreciate it, mate. Welcome, guys, to another Guitar Wanker episode. We've been uh, a little bit behind the eight ball with uh, just crazy shit going on. But uh, we're back into it. This is episode 211. We've got a great episode today because I've been wanting to get this guy on the show for a long time. And, um, yeah, <laughs> it's kind of funny. You live so far away. he lives next door. But anyway, uh, Eric Singer, the drummer from Kiss... I mean, who isn't a KISS fan, man? Who didn't grow up with KISS? So we've got Eric on the show. I've been dying to hear his story and how how do you get into KISS? How do you do that? Anyway, so really excited to present that to you guys. Um, of course, you heard Bruce and what he's doing with his show and the new video and everything going on there. Uh, and also doing Guitar Wank Minute, which will be for the Patreon members. So we give you guys something a little, bit of speci- a little special. We hope you're all safe and sound and keeping well in these crazy times. So sit back, enjoy the show, and we'll see you guys all uh, soon. All right. Thanks, guys. Bye.
2: A couple minutes late because I was I wanted to I loaded my car up now. So after I'm done here, I'm going to go just put gas in it. That way I have to do another thing in the morning for modern drummer. They're doing a live webcasting at 11 o'clock our time. Right. Two Eastern for modern drummer. I'm doing it like a, with Nico McBrain from Iron Maiden, the drummer. Yeah, So we're doing a, a thing together. Like a, I guess, hard rock, heavy metal round table thing or something. Usually I was going to do it cool. with a couple of drummers, but I guess he's only going to just do it with Nico and myself. Right. So, this is yeah. a cool little studio. How's it, how's it sound in here when you get stuff?
1: It's good, man. It sounds great in here. know, yeah, it's always a work in progress, but you know, I just have all my gear in here and just... I haven't recorded drums in here before, but I've done other instruments. Oh, actually, I've done small kits. But other instruments that's, that's all right? you
2: need and when you record yeah. that's all you need yeah. what is that like an acolyte snare or what is it
1: uh god man i don't even know I've got a lot of i don't
2: think it could be a black beauty is it a black beauty it
1: might be a black beauty
2: i can't tell it's metal right
1: uh yeah
2: it looks I like think it think so, yeah i mean that's usually that's all you need although there's so many other drums that people don't realize everyone's getting used to thinking like oh, okay have a ludwig kit or or get a, a, a you know lovely black beauty. There's so many other drums that, are, as long as it's chrome over brass, usually and most of them sound good. Um, pearl made some in the 70s really great ones, and you can get those for cheap, two two hundred fifty dollars. Oh, they wow. sound great. Oh yes, yeah, what Stuart Copeland used on all the Police records. Yeah. All those Police records is a they called it a Pearl Jupiter snare. It's a chrome over brass Pearl snare drum right. that's what Stuart Copeland used forever. But he was a Tom and Dorsey, so he never really talks about it. Eventually, they made his own signature drum, which they tried to copy that Pearl one. But the Pearl one is what's on all those records.
1: Yeah, I think I paid maybe eleven hundred for it, and it's got one more tom. Um, oh, cool! And you know, I just wanted something in the studio that we could use for ideas and stuff. And
2: no, it's fine because so if you put some mics further away, yeah, you can get some you know some natural you know room ambience room and stuff. Is it loud in here? I mean, I heard you playing a few times, but. I don't really notice it's, it much.
1: When I close everything up in the curtains, it just sounds like, it kind of sounds like your drum You can kind of hear it.
2: Uh, I, I think my drum was probably a little more dense, yeah, because I floated, you haven't the, got this. I floated the walls in there. Ah,
1: that's, that's a huge difference, too.
2: I, on the studs, I put, put that Z-bar, yep. you know, so then you mount the, the walls to that, so they're floated off the studs, and then I hung carpet. Yeah. On all the walls. See, you have hard services. If you, if you muted it a little bit, you want to get some reflection to get ambience. But if you muted it more, you wouldn't get... I was not looking to record. I was looking right. to get... Right.
1: Well, man, I've been dying to, dying to hear your story. I, I mean, God, Kiss. I grew up... Everyone grew up with Kiss. It's the, one of the biggest it, rock and roll bands in the fucking world.
2: Including me. I grew up on it, too. So that's the irony of the thing for me.
1: That's great. So what's where did you, where did you grow up?
2: I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. Right. Actually a suburb called Euclid on the east side, but basically it's Cleveland because yep. you know every when you ask people where they're from, you usually associate yourself with the sports teams and and the main city. Yeah. You know, because when we went, we went to concerts, the concerts were all in downtown Cleveland at that time. Um and in the 70s, they used to have what they call a World Series of Rock, the big stadium concerts yeah. at the old uh, football and baseball stadium, where the Cleveland Browns and Cleveland Indians used to play.
1: Wow. So I better introduce you. <laughs> okay. <no problem. laughs> I haven't even started the show. Okay. Uh, welcome, Guitar Wank viewers. Finally, we have uh, someone been wanting to get on the show for a long time, Eric Singer, drummer from Kiss, a, uh, yeah, neighbor. Been yeah. wanting to get you on the show for a while and find out the deal, and... um. Man, thank you so much. This You're is welcome. Really, really awesome.
2: You've it's- had some of my other friends on here besides Frank Devito. And- Frankie
1: Devito, we had uh, you, you. You know Joe Bonamassa.
2: Yeah, I know Joe very well. Of course. Yeah,
1: we had Joe on. Uh, Robin Ford. Who else we had? Smitty, Marvin Smitty Smith. You know? Oh he- yeah, he's
2: great. Marvin's an amazing drummer. You know, Robin Ford played on the Kiss record. I don't know he did. Know yeah, Creatures of the Night. I think he played on the solo for the song I Still Love You I Think wow. but you might have to double check it yep. that was a record when Ace Fraley had basically even though he's pictured on the album cover he had l- left the band and they used uh, different studio guys to play all the different Get Rick Derringer yep. I think Robin Ford Vinnie Vincent I'm trying to remember who else might have played on it uh, I think st- I think the guitar player from Mr. Mister oh yeah yep. I can't remember his name yeah. is it Steve something um, st-
1: is Steve Ferris
2: Steve Ferris you're right
1: yeah 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 wow man so you grew up in uh cleveland
2: cleveland ohio wow
1: and when did you start drums when did you get on the kit
2: um my father was a band leader and my mother was a singer and played violin as well so my parents were musicians and musical yeah and um My older brother and older sister, they played piano and took lessons from the Cleveland Institute of Music when they were little. But for some reason, when I came along, they didn't have me play piano and follow suit. I don't know why. Maybe they just got tired of driving them downtown to the Institute (laughs) on Saturday mornings. And um, eventually, You know, my—I think my dad. Basically, you had to play an instrument. It wasn't really a choice, but um, I just always liked drums, probably from watching the Ed Sullivan Show in the '60s and seeing, of course, the Beatles in 1964. At that time, I was like, when they were on the show, I think I was like six and a half years old. Well, you remember it? Oh yeah, yeah. Everybody remembered that because it was big and girls screaming and, and then, of course, all the other bands that were on the show: Rolling Stones and the Dave Clark Five. I remember them because Dave Clark was. The drummer and the leader of the band oh, and yeah. his name was on the bass drum and he had a red sparkle rogers drum kit so i was always fascinated by that kit and i think that's probably part of the reason i ended up my first good kit was a rogers drum kit that i got rogers. for my 14th birthday a silver sparkle kit in 1972 um but my first kit ever was a blue sparkle um dixie drum set which were made by pearl right and ironically that's what i play now i've played pearl since 1986 so Um, it's kind of ironic that I started on Pearl and ended up playing Pearl most of my life wow
1: so you were just playing you grew up playing local bands and stuff like that
2: well I played in my dad's band my dad was a band leader what they call like a society band leader so which means you played more for like high society what they call like you know rich people right basically rich people's uh, country club parties their debutante parties when they would introduce their daughter to society yeah Um, we would play every year for the uh Metropolitan Opera. When they would come to town, they would come to town for a week and do a residency at Cleveland Public Hall. My dad would play for the opening night and then play every night, uh, and then the final opera ball would be on uh, the Saturday night, when right. the night of closing. And I started doing that uh, when I was fourteen, wow. playing in my dad's band.
1: So you were playing a lot back then. Oh yeah, oh.
2: and we um, we played. You know, I played for a couple of different presidents when they'd come to the town. Like a President Ford or Reagan, Carter. Um, I remember it was pretty funny. In 1980, when Ronald Reagan ran against Jimmy Carter for president, my dad got hired to play for their debate. They were having a big national debate in Cleveland. So my dad's band got hired to play, ironically, for both candidates. So I played for President Carter because he was president at the time. So I remember we had to come through the kitchen, secret service, went, opened all my drums up, went through all my stuff to make sure no weapons and all that kind of thing. And halfway through the gig, my dad took off and went to the other hotel where president, which became President Reagan. He was the candidate yep. then, and he went and played for his party. So he, he was double dipping. Wow. When it comes to when it, look at when it comes to people don't choose political sides when it comes to work you know yeah right it's like Michael Jordan said every you know his famous saying was Republicans buy sneakers all you know too so basically <laughs> he was basically saying I'm not getting involved in politics. I play basketball. I'm a businessman, and some people always got mad that he didn't become more socially active. But some people just go, "Hey, that's I'm not a politician. It's not you're not obligated to do it. You should do it if you feel like you want to do it." I think, and uh, so my dad was kind of that way. Even though I know I knew what his political leanings were, but when it came to work, he didn't care. He didn't get involved with that stuff.
1: So you you were playing a lot as a kid, like pretty yeah, and Uh, all types of stuff.
2: Yeah, well. We, mostly, we played you know all the what they call the American song, which would be like you know Gershwin, Cole Porter, all the show tunes from all the musicals. Yeah. Um, but then I'd play every kind of ethnic thing, whether it was you know Oktoberfest, you know playing German polkas, and or Hungarian uh, events with you know playing Hungarian Chardash, or an Italian thing, or a bar mitzvah for some kid. You know, so I knew all the ethnic music of all the different types of nationalities. And um, Cleveland's a pretty Big melting pot. You know, you'd have a Slovenian home, a German Hofbrough house, an Italian home, or, you know, a lot of, there was a lot of uh, Slovenes and Ch- Czechoslovakians and, um, you know, Eastern Europeans yep. living in Cleveland, a big contingency. But we played, you know, a lot, mainly a lot of country club type parties. So we'd play more of like, I would call it like they call it society music. My dad used to refer to himself kind of uh, as the. Uh, you know, poor man's Freddie Martin. If you know what <laughs> Freddie Martin sounded like, he had like all these saxophones playing in unison with these unison vibratos. Kind of a you know, it's it's kind of more of an older, cornier sound if you by today's standards. Right. But it was a sound. Um, you know, my dad was a lot older. He was born in 1909. Oh wow! And so he he um, he graduated. He moved here to America from he immigrated from Germany when he was 12. Um, and so when he graduated, he started. Um, touring with this band out of cleveland named freddie mar uh, i'm sorry uh um freddie carlone
1: okay it was a big
2: ba- back then yep. you know there was no other kinds of bands except big bands and dance bands yeah yeah and so the f- that was the band my dad was touring with in 19 like 35 what was he playing my dad played violin and he also played saxophone tenor sax well, he played tenor alto and clarinet and he even played a little drums oh, wow. but his main thing was violin right from when he was five but he also would play tenor sax yeah and in that first band perry como was the singer and that was perry (laughs) como's first gig so my dad was in the band with him for like two years and he said they used to go on double dates he had a 32 ford coupe with a rumble seat which means the trunk opens up and it's a seat yeah yeah and he said they used to go on double dates and i think I think my aunt might have gone out with him, but I never knew the real story because right. I was too young to get the full story. My dad was a lot older yeah. um, when he got married. So,
1: Did he uh, marry, where was your mom from?
2: She was from Cleveland. She was from Cleveland. Yeah, okay. she was local.
1: And he was germ- whereabouts in Germany?
2: Well, he was they, he was from what they call the old Austrian-Hungarian Empire, so they were called with Doner Schwaben. were Germans that lived in the Austrian-Hungarian territory. Now, if you look on a map today, that's West Germany. Right. Okay. But the, the the country zones were much different, different in 1909 when he was. He was going. He was born during World War One. Yeah. And he told me stories when he was a little kid that the Slovenian soldiers came right through and and they would just take all your animals you know they'd come through and just pick up your sheep and your lamb just grab whatever they wanted you know kind of like rape and pillage basically so of course people wanted to come to America for a better life and eventually they came here and he came here in 1921 wow and then eventually like you know in those days people did it. The right way, yeah, you know, they yeah. c- t- did it proper through immigration with proper papers through Ellis, Ellis Island, and then when they wanted to bring their other family members over, the laws clearly state that you're supposed to have, you were supposed to provide a job right. and a place for people to live, yep. you know, instead of this chain migration. You're allowed to bring family members, but you had to have a job for them and a place. So they sponsored other family members and people from their town. And they gave him jobs. They, My grandparents were tailors. They uh, had a tailor shop. Wow. And my aunt worked there too. And yep. My dad was, I don't know how he never, he just got into music and be, was only a musician his whole life. Um, but my aunt worked at the tailor shop with my grandparents. Right. And um, and then my grandfather died at a young age. And so my grandmother got remarried and the guy she married had been a baker. He had a bakery shop called Howler's Bakery. But he retired really young at like 42 or 45. Right. Um, because He had done real well for himself, so my family had done you know, they came here and did the American dream, they built their businesses and lives up, and did you know, had the there was, it was the land of opportunity, yeah. and, and they yeah. were able to make that opportunity work for them. So, wow, um, that's super cool! Yeah, so I'm a first generation American,
1: okay, yeah. And the, the singer was your name, well, yeah, well my last
2: name your... was really Men Singer, so men. Oh, okay, it's, so which is a German that. name, yeah. my dad shortened it. Because um, it sounded his name was Johnny Singer, so it sounded easier to say and less less ethnic. Yeah, which is yeah. what a lot of people do. Yeah, you know, for sure. Like Gene Simmons was really Kaim Vitz. Yep. and then he changed. Then it was Americanized to Gene Klein, but uh, he changed it to Gene Simmons. You know, yeah. like Gene always said to me, you know, you you don't choose your name when you're born. You can decide to change it and choose it whatever you want it to be. Yeah, when you're able to, and you make that choice. You yeah. know, but um, he, you know, Gene's always. You know, and I'm agree in agreement with them. Sometimes, if you have such an ethnic sounding name, at least in America, it didn't al- doesn't always work.
1: Yeah, yeah. Especially
2: in entertainment. Especially
1: back. Yeah, and back and then too. Right. You know, you
2: think of Tony Curtis. His real name was Bernard Schwartz. You know, yeah. most entertainers changed their change names name. because yeah. they had ethnic names.
1: Yeah, yeah. So you were playing drums with your dad. Um, and at what point did you did you venture out of that and get into more of your own thing? Or well.
2: I had friends, of course, you know, once I heard, I mean, I was always start, you know, into rock and roll. I had an older sister. I do have an older sister, Monique. And she was four years older. So, of course, and being a girl, girls, you know, end up liking, you know, boy bands and all that stuff. So, she went crazy about the Beatles and all that. But she would bring home records, you know, you know Chicago, Sly and the Family Stone, Supremes, Temptations, yeah. Raspberries. I'm trying to think of some of the, all the records that she had. <laughs> and um so i got exposed to probably a lot of music that maybe a, i might have discovered it later who knows but i directly credit her with a lot of the influence a lot of that stuff hearing it at a young age and um so that exposed me to music and i think i, I know i remember we moved to a different part of town when i was going into the sixth grade and the kids in this new school it was the same city it was just a different elementary school different part of town but for some reason all these kids were way more into rock and roll they were into like Led Zeppelin and all that stuff and we, we I remember we started a band in sixth grade yeah and we had two drummers even because the other kid was a friend of mine and he played drums so I kind of figured well let'll just have you know we'll both play drums we'll take turns and stuff but it was that you know it was just for fun yeah but um then by the time I got into high school I'd met you know some other kids from others junior highs, then you're all kind of we had a big high school, like three thousand kids. So um I met some other kids that were really good musicians and started jamming with them. One of my friends, his name was Mike, Mike McGill. Um his brother was in my 10th grade class, and Mike was in 9th grade, still in junior high. And his brother said, Oh, you gotta hear my brother play guitar, he's really good, blah, 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 blah. So that's, he hooked me up to start jamming with him. And he and I had a bunch of different bands through high school and stuff, and even after high school. And um, so I never played in cover bands. Um, oh, wow, never. I, I Never. I only, well, my, well, my dad, I right. played those gigs, but yep. I never played in cover bands, always was in original bands. Yeah. And because um, I always wanted to play, you know, Wanted to play my own own music, you know, create your own music with people. And it just so happened that the guys that I met, that's what they wanted to do as well. They didn't get into that cover band circuit. Um, And then, um, you know, eventually I realized that the Cleveland scene wasn't, I mean, it's really great, a lot of great musicians. They always were supportive of breaking a lot of bands nationally, but nobody local. They weren't really supportive of the local scene as much Mm. as you would have hoped and liked. Yeah. Um, Even though it's called the Rock and Roll Capital, you know, the Hall of Fame's there and all that stuff. And uh, so I just realized um, I got kind of disillusioned with Cleveland. And and I made the plan in early 83. I I had been married at the time. I I knew I was getting divorced, so I just waited until I got divorced. And in the interim, I just was woodshedding constantly, every day practicing. And I shipped my drums out to here, California. My mother was living here. And um, I shipped the drums to her warehouse in Orange County and once I got divorced, a week later I got in my car and I drove across country and wow, I didn't true. know anybody when I moved here. I didn't know anything about the music scene. I mean I literally came in blind and green as you could be. <laughs> but I've always figured that you've got to be a chameleon in life and you've got to learn to adapt and change You know, change your colors and adapt to the environment. And I just always, kind of always had the point of view that you should always go into every situation with open eyes and open ears. Because so, you're going to learn a lot if you are receptive to that and aware. Yeah. And um, you know, back then you didn't have any internet and stuff like that. You had a place called the Musician's Contact Service where you went into this place in Hollywood. They advertised in the back of these... Um, Local rock magazines. There was Bam magazine and Music Connection. Music
1: Connection, yeah, yeah.
2: And in the back, back of there, they would advertise. So you go and sign up there and put your name in and say you know that you're looking for a gig or whatever. And they had a bulletin board, and that's where I found this local band. And of course, they everybody. It's you know, it's Hollywood, so everybody inflates what's really going on they make it seem like they got all this stuff on happening and they're about to get a record deal this band said oh we're working with george tutko who was a known producer at the time he had worked with rod stewart and cheap trick and other people like that and we're just finishing up our demo and ready to do a video and like you know like making it sound like they had label interest and had you know some important or known people working with them yeah and the guitar player did know George Tutko, but they didn't have the things going on. Then they weren't ready at the place that they mentioned. But I figured, hey, you know, you got to start somewhere. The, I know, They were good musicians. The singer had a really good voice, kind of like a Mickey Thomas, you know, that yeah. high tenor yeah. of Jefferson Starship type voice. And the uh, bass player was, you know, they were all really good. The guitar player was re- a really good guitar player, kind of like, he was kind of into Gary Moore. I'm not going to say it was that level, but, you know, there was a lot of good guitar players in L.A. at that time. Yeah, I mean, No disrespect, but they were a dime a dozen. I mean, the the best guitar players where you came from, everybody was that good when you got out here. I mean, (laughs) literally hundreds and thousands of guys were that, you're like, holy shit, everybody's great. And um, we're all very good. So I joined that band, and then after a while, uh, you know, I kind of realized that, I just felt like I, no disrespect, but I just, I could tell I was way more hungry, way more focused, and way more serious. I always said to everybody, I was serious as a heart attack. Yeah. And that's how I looked at it. I mean, I really was like tunnel vision about what I wanted to do and my, what my intentions were. And so Carmine, the piece, the drummer, was doing those drum contests. Yeah. And at that time, th- that was before Guitar Center was doing them. Oh, well, Carmine was doing them through Guitar Center, but he was sponsored by Pearl Drums and Mattel. Uh, the toy company, they had these electronic drums called Synsonics. Yeah. Carmine had great sponsorship and he was a famous drummer. So he went around the country doing those things. And um, so I entered the one here and uh, I made the finals and they were at the palace. And at that time it was a big deal. I mean, they would sell out a thousand seat club, um, a little theater for just a drum contest. And all the judges were famous guys like Steve Smith from Journey and Myron Grombacher from Pat Benatar and... Bruce Gary, the drummer from the Knack, and, and the Go Go's drummer Gina Schock I forget all the other ones, but there was a, you know, a lot of who's who at the time of drummers. Everybody you'd seen on MTV, yeah, you know, saying. all of a sudden you're playing and Steve Smith's like <laughs> where you are when I'm playing, and that's pretty intimidating, yeah, you know, and uh, especially when you an inexperienced kid from the Midwest and, uh, but from that video, some girl. Got my number from Carmine. She called me up and said, Hey, I got your number from Carmine. I'm doing this video for Playboy called Women of Rock. And, you know, I want to, you want to be in the video. And I've got the guitar player from Steeler. The guitar, that was the band Ingve Malmsteen was in. Oh, he had okay. Ju- he had just left that band and joined a band called Alcatraz. Yeah. So yeah. this was the guy that took his place. A guy named Kurt James, who was great. Wow. And the bass player had played with Lita Ford. So we went to rehearse at the rehearsal place. And the bass player said to me, Um, Hey, um, my girlfriend's really good friends with Lita Ford, and her drummer, who was Randy Castillo at the time, who went on to play with Ozzy, he he goes, Randy just quit, and she's going to need a drummer. I think you'd be really good for her. I'm going to recommend you to her. And so he recommended me and got me an audition. And so that's kind of, by being seen at that drum contest, that became the chain link I call it the chain link fence. Yeah. Everybody I met since that point to this day has been connected to the previous people or situation. So I auditioned for Lita in a cattle call and I got the gig. And then all of a sudden, I, I mean, literally like six weeks before that, I was in that drum contest. Six weeks later, we're playing Long Beach Arena on New Year's Eve opening for RAT for, for 15,000 people. Yep. And Carmine Apiece comes to the gig and he sees me and I go up to me, hey Carmine, he goes, hey, what are you doing here? I go, I'm playing with Lita. Um, and he goes, wow, that's great. He goes, you know, and he, Carmine's always been cool, and we've be, we've become good friends since yep. then. And he said, you know, Eric, that's exactly what that drum contest is all about. It's about people creating opportunities so people can get this stu- discovered. Um, I, I think I think the year before the contest, the drummer that won it the year before was a guy named um, Sonny Emery, who ah, went on okay. to play with. Jean Luc Ponty and yep. Earth Wind and Fire and became you know amazing drummer. He won the contest the year before. The guy that won the contest the year that I was in it is a guy named Sal Rodriguez. Sal plays with War, the oh, band War, okay. yep. and he's been playing with them for over twenty years. And um, wow. so I don't remember what happened to the other guys from that contest because there was. I know Steven Adler was in the contest, but oh, he, he was. He, he yeah. didn't make the finals. This before this is 1984, so yeah, this way, is way before. before Guns N' Roses, yeah. everyone even knew who they were. <laughs> uh, he didn't make the finals, but I remember meeting him then. Yep. Yeah. And but um, he was in the semifinals. I remember that at Guitar Center, the old Guitar Center in Sherman Oaks. Yeah. But anyways, that started the my journey. You know, so I always give thanks to all the people that gave me the opportunities at the beginning, like Ray Marzano, the guy that that got me hooked up to audition for Lita and Lita for hired me on my first gig and how long do
1: you live with Lita for
2: um probably a little over a year and then the time we started doing demos and I did I did pre-production a few different times for a record that ended up not getting uh ever made well at least while I was in the band um she was engaged to Tony Iommi at the time and Tony had seen me playing with her and then one day Lita called me up and said, hey, Tony wants to know if you want to play on some demos. <laughs> so I started playing on, he actually was producing some of her demos in the very beginning. Yep. And then she got, she went through a couple different producers. Um, anyways, to move on, I ended up starting to play with Tony. I ended up playing on his record, which became a Black Sabbath album called Seventh Star with Glenn Hughes singing. Yep. That's the first album I ever did. That was yeah. my first record. And I ended up joining Black Sabbath and that caused a, a rift between Lita and Tony and, uh, you know, every all the parties involved. It wasn't always... It didn't end the best as it hopefully could have, but, hey, that's life, right. you know? And... Um, I did that for about a year. We did a tour with Glenn Hughes. A little We only did like five or six shows with Glenn Hughes and Glenn was having problems so then they discovered this singer in New, in New Jersey named Ray Gillen yep. and he became the singer. We finished out the rest of the touring. We ended up doing another record um, which I played drums on called uh, Eternal Idol and um, then we brought Bob Daisley in, who played on you know with Rainbow and Ozzy and stuff and Gary Moore and all that. He played bass and wrote a lot of the lyrics for the songs um, and he was going to join the band but they had, then we changed management because we used to have Don Arden, the famous Don Arden yeah. as the manager, yep. which is Sharon Osbourne's father and he was the, you know, he's famous and infamous um, but Tony fired him and got a different manager, and things kind of, they just gotten kind of in a, disheveled in a big upheaval, and Bob Daisley said, hey Eric, uh, you know, I'm going to go back and play with Gary Moore, he'd been playing with Gary for a few years, right. so he called me up and said, hey Gary needs a drummer, he can't find anybody, he's auditioned in England, and I told him about you, you should audition, I think you, this would be good for you to do. So I flew to London, got the audition, got the gig.
1: Hold on, hold you got to play with Gary. Yeah. How the fuck was that? That's- well, it was kind of
2: like, I did it all, I mean, I was still in Black Sabbath, so Bob called me up, and he goes, look, Eric, I'm not going to do the Black Sabbath thing, because it's just not, it's too unorganized, and, you know, a lot of times people go, I always say, don't throw out the dirty dishwater until you got clean dishwater. Right. So, you don't know, just get rid of it, you know, he knew he could go back and tour, and, um, so, I guess he had auditioned a bunch of guys, but he hadn't found anybody he was happy with, so... I flew over. I didn't tell anybody. I got. I flew over there, auditioned, and then I came down to me and another guy. I was told so they wanted me to come again the next day and learn a couple more songs, which I did. And in those days, you know, you didn't have computers or anything. <laughs> right. You you had a Walkman, and right. they give you a cassette. And, you know, and you're sitting there or a CD, and you're sitting in your hotel room with headphones with on your leg playing and trying to learn songs that way. That's Damn. how I had to learn them. Yep. Uh, the the new songs. Yeah. And um, but I got the gig, and so I went home, and then I you know I quit Black Sabbath and. And I did the Gary Moore tour, which was in 87 for the Wild Frontier album, which they made a live, there's a live concert video for that. If you go on YouTube, there was never an album. There's a lot of live stuff yeah. on the B-sides, on singles of the, the next record after the war. A lot of the singles he'd put out would have live versions from the previous tour. But there's a live from a stadium, which means Ice Stadium in, in Swedish. There's that live concert. It's never been released on DVD, but it was there all the video clips are still on YouTube, although they're oh, kind of grainy.
1: So how was how was Gary?
2: Very intense. Yeah. Very intense. Um
1: Was he he was hitting the booze back hard no, back then? No. At that no? time
2: he wasn't drinking at all. Oh wow. He was very focused. Yep. I mean, he was, you know, got to remember at that time, we're talking 87, Gary was he was the Van Halen of Europe. Yeah. He was the guitar hero of Europe. Yeah. For sure. Bigger than anybody. And we would play five to 10,000 seaters, we played some, you know, I remember we played in, we played in, I think it was Stockholm, we played like a 10,000 seater. He was bigger, playing bigger places than Prince at the time. Prince was on tour with Sign of the Times tour, I remember, because we were in the hotel bar at the Sheridan, and I remember it was like, it was like you can walk around the lobby, the bar's in the very center and it's down a few steps. And, but you can kind of walk around the whole perimeter, which is kind of part of the lobby. And I remember Prince kind of, sta- I was in the barn, I remember him standing kind of walking around, and he was standing around with the bodyguard, but he never came in. Yep. I wanted to go talk to him or say something, but I just don't want to bother people, so yeah. I let him be. But I wanted to meet him because he's like always been one of my favorite musicians. Yep. Um, and our keyboard player, Neil Carter, who... Also, he's playing UFO again now. He used to play UFO. Oh okay. UFO um, again. Neil was like, he was like one of those, uh, he's the kind of like utility guy. He played guitar, sang lead and great backgrounds and played keyboards and all that stuff. Yeah. And he loved Prince and he loved that album. We'd always play Sign of the Times all the time. A lot. Yeah. And um, I, I don't know if he ever got to meet him, but we were trying to find a way to see the tour, hopefully, excuse me, on a day off somewhere while we were in Europe, because we were both in Europe at the same time, but it just never happened. Damn. But Gary's pretty intense. I mean we we rehearsed in London for a month. Wow. And uh at John Henry Studios and Bob Daisy was playing you know, the bass player and Neil, they lived in Brighton, yep. which is a couple hours away by or like maybe an hour or so by train, i I forget. Yeah. But they'd have to catch the last train by six o'clock. So they'd always have to leave rehearsal a little bit early. And Gary's one of those guys that likes to play like forever. You know, he like I mean the shows would be anywhere from sometimes two, two and a half hours. 245 sometimes a couple you know because he would extend the jams and solos on songs if he felt it yeah you know there was a song called the loner and yeah one night i think we played like it was 25 or 30 minute version of it (laughs) one song yeah he's just going forever he would bring it down bring it back up and but it was great playing with him because he was he's he never runs out, out, out of ideas, you know, yeah. when he's soloing. His vocabulary is amazing. Like he can play any kind of style yeah. of music if yeah. he wants. But his vocabulary for whatever he's doing is really broad. And you know, he can, you know, some people are not jammers. He's a jammer. Yeah. And after rehearsals, I'd stay and jam with him just guitar and drums. And oh, we wow. jam on like Thin Lizzy. Sometimes we play like Emerald or yep. Warriors by, you know, off the Jailbreak Thin Lizzy album. We would jam Thin Lizzy songs <laughs> sometimes, and um, which was cool because in the rehearsals, he was playing that 58 Les Paul, that Peter Green guitar, yep. and he had that Pink Salmon 61 Strat. Those are the fa- two famous guitars that he was known for having, yeah, yeah. and he played those always in rehearsals. Wow. But he didn't take them on tour. He was playing those Jackson Charvels. Because I asked him, why don't you bring them on tour? He said, they're getting too valuable yeah. and I'm worried about it. And that was 87. Wow, As we yeah. know, the value on those Wait. things probably went through the roof, through the roof yeah. uh, and who knows what they're worth now. I know Kirk Hammett owns that 58. I don't know who has the Strat, the Pink Salmon Strat. But those are the... On the albums like Quarters of Power and Victims of the Future, those are those... those, which Jeff Glicksman, who did all the Kansas albums, he produced those albums. Gary's guitar tones on those albums is the best.
1: It's amazing. Yeah, Yeah.
2: and that's Glicksman. Glicksman did the two Sabbath albums I did.
1: Oh, okay, Um, so you knew, knew him from that.
2: Yeah, well, the ironic thing is, when I did the Sabbath albums, they... Glenn Hughes was working with Gary Moore and he had done the one album album run for cover, but then they had a falling out. So they got Glenn to come and sing on the Black Sabbath album. And I remember saying to Jeff, and I want to play with Gary Moore one day, if I ever get a chance to jam with him, I want." I I kept always saying that to him because I loved those Victims of the Future and Quarters of Powers albums. So ironically, Glenn ended up joining Gary Moore, uh, Black Sabbath in 86, January of 87, I'm in Gary Morris band a year like a year later. It's so Damn. it was so weird and and there was another connection there um, with Cozy Powell because Cozy Powell and I replaced each other three different times in in bands. Um, he after Black Sabbath he became the drummer in Black Sabbath. Um, I mean Tony did a couple gigs and with some drummers that like did one or two gigs, but the drummer that was the next drummer in the band was Cozy Powell. Yeah, and then. Um, after I did Gary Moore, I, w- I was in a band called Badlands, Cozy Powell was Gary Moore's drummer after me.
1: <laughs> so he was right behind you. On but it, he right?
2: had also played with Gary like you know, in the 70s. Right. On the, Cozy did a couple solo records, and Gary played on those. How uh, was
1: was Gary, how was he with, with you coming in the band? Was he really demanding on drummers, or, or he kind of let you go, or he nah, he was riding you the whole time?
2: All, all the time. Yep. Everybody said... I remember the Colin Schofield, he was the Zildjian he was English and he knew you know, everybody in England knew of of course Gary and the legend of his you know, he, he's had a lot of really well known drummers play with him through the years, you yeah, know, Ian yeah. Pace, Tommy Aldridge, Cozy Powell and on and on and on. Um, and so I mean, I knew I was in good company get, just getting the gig, but, but like Colin Schofield said to me after I did the tour, he goes, Eric you got to give yourself credit. You survived the whole tour. You survived Gary Moore. And I mean he was saying it jokingly <laughs> yeah, but but he meant it like he goes everyone knows the rep. I mean he fired Ian Pace of Deep Purple when they were doing uh, Victims of the Future album. Wow. Cuz he wasn't happy the way he was playing and Ian Pace talked about it in Modern Drummer magazine said, you know, I was having problems and, you know, he was saying that he understood why they replaced him with Bobby Shenard from Billy Squire's band. Yeah. And then Bobby Squire, I mean sorry, Bobby did ended up being the doing the tour. Um, and that when they opened for Rush, I think it was, right, yep. or Queen, I forget which tour it was. But he was very intense. I'll never forget one time we were doing a gig. Now, mind you, he would extend solos. So if a solo section was normally 12 bars, it might be 112 bars in one <laughs> night. So, you know, my dad always taught me as a kid, you know, uh, when you're playing drums, you need to. You know, you're not just foundational, but you need to support like the soloist. So if somebody's playing phrases and stuff, you know, you need to catch some of their licks and phrases and phrase with them and, you know, uh,
0: support it. Like a
2: big band drummer. So I've always approached my drumming as kind of like from a big band drummer's perspective. You support vocal and guitar lines and stuff. And, you know, I I play more off the guitar than I do actually off the bass, to be honest with you. I always did. And it comes from my dad telling me, you know, to listen to the lead instrument and the singers, so I'm following Gary one night, you know, and he's doing some stuff. And I mean, look at—I'll admit—I wasn't all that experienced. I'll be honest with you at the time. So um, one time I'm playing, I, I guess I did some lick, and he didn't like it. Sometimes it's like he wanted you to have a certain amount of ability or chops, but not necessarily use it.
0: Right. You know. Yep.
2: Um, and so I, play, I, I'm following him. I did some lick, and also he turns around. and He goes, he, he just turns around. me with like evil look. He goes, <laughs> "Fuck off!" And, oh, fuck! And, and I, I'm, he, I mean, he turned around and I'm like it was like scary. And I'm, but I was used to it because I played with my, my dad for 10 years, and my dad was right. tough. My dad was just like that. My yep. dad used to kick me off the drums when I was a kid and say, "You're not playing it right. I'm going to show you how to do it." So. I had grown some thick skin by that point, but I do remember kind of going like, "Oh, you know, oh. I wanted—I wanted to disappear behind the drums because, you know, he never said anything after it." But yeah. I realized that, you know, he's just like I. Re- there was one song called, uh, um, it was the opening song on, on on Wild Frontier, um, over the hills of far Oh, yeah, yeah. The yeah. song over the, which is like a six-eight, yeah, kind of a kind of Irish kind of a shuffly thing but that whole record was done with programmed drums there were some real drums overlaid by a studio drummer but it's all programmed drum machines okay and um so some of that stuff you know to play it physically as a human drummer you kind of had to figure out well what part am I going to emphasize more because there's more going on than you know, then four limbs. (laughs) So he, I remember he specific, that song's like, and he wanted it all with one hand. I would cheat it and be going like this way, almost like doubled up, like how you play disco beats, but it's in six, eight. So it's triplet feel. And he's like, and I get it. You can feel the difference, but sometimes it, you know, it took, dexterity, and you had to learn how to play that. So there's times where, until I could get it up to speed, I would sometimes, he'd be he'd be looking at me, so I'd be like going dun, 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 and as soon as he'd turn around, I'd go dun, 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 and he'd look at me, and I'd be, I'd be back to like this. So I, I found ways to kind of get around it, right. sometimes. Yep. But he was, I mean, literally, he would tell you sometimes verbatim what he wanted. Yep. And I don't have a problem with that, because yeah. ultimately, I'm there to play for the band, play for the song, play for the artist. I think... When, he, when Cozy Powell came in after me, they did the record, and Bob Daisley told me the story. He goes, Eric, I told Gary when he first hired Cozy, I don't think it's a good idea, I don't think you guys, are going, you know, you're going to butt heads. Because he knew Cozy's the kind of guy that's going to say you hired Cozy Powell, this is how I play, yep. don't tell me how to play. But Bob said, oh it was the opposite when they made the record, it was great, it all worked out. He goes, but when we got into rehearsals for the tour and they had to play other material, when Gary started telling him how to play. He didn't like it. He fired him. Yeah, and then I got a call from Gary at that time, but I was on tour with Paul Stanley doing a solo tour, and he called me. He saying he needed a drummer, but he ended up hiring Chris Slade, and um, and I wouldn't I wouldn't have been able to do it anyways because I was in Badlands. We had just started the band, and and uh, I was doing Paul's tour in the beginning of the year. Right. Um, while we were waiting to finish the record, and then I went on tour with Badlands in Japan starting in June. And then that was that. But ironically, I met Cozy. I met him briefly when he came to one of the Hammersmith Odeon shows with Gary Moore. So, and, um, it was, so that was a big deal for me because I was a big fan of his. Yeah. And he's one of my heroes. And then he played in Brian May's band. And so I went to see him at the Palace with Brian May in, um, I think it was 93, or 94, whatever it was, 93 or 94, and um, I hung out with him after, and he was really cool. And he gave me—I remember—I always felt good because he gave me a nice compliment. He goes, "I want, He goes, "When I had to learn your parts for the for Gary, he goes you did some stuff that." He goes, "It was pretty tricky." He goes, "It was really good stuff." He goes, "Really good stuff, mate." He, so <laughs> I remember feeling like you know, I felt like a
1: yeah, right, like
2: a kid in a candy store. He made me feel so good, giving me a compliment. And ironically, you know, he he was Brian May's drummer and then when he did the next record in 98 he got killed in a car accident and i auditioned and i ended up being i replaced him in brian may's band
1: oh you so, played with brian May. Too. yeah
2: so i did oh, i ended up so that's why i said cozy and i followed each other in three different three different bands wow
1: so uh, giving back to gary did you what was the hang like after shows and that was he a hang kind of guy or not really
2: yeah, he was. He was always really nice. I mean, I got along good with him. He had a great sense of humor. Yeah, the guys in the band were all because they. He, Gary was smart. He got or the management. They got guys with the right personalities that weren't confrontational. Yeah, were good players at a high level, good caliber, and they everybody knew their roles and knew their place, and nobody had drug or alcohol issues. And Gary was very, he wasn't drinking or doing anything then. He was very driven, focused on his career, and that record was very successful. I mean, we played. Um, very big places until we got to America. Yeah, and then America was just doing clubs, and he was not happy. Wow, he never toured America again after that. That was the last tour he ever did in America. It was '87 the oh. one I did with him? He only did two other shows, I think. He played on the Letterman show, but he did one show at Universal with the, when he started doing the blue stuff, and I think a show in New York, and that's it. That's he it. never did a tour in America after that '87. He was always. I think very mad and disappointed because he was such a guitar hero over there. Huge. And over here, you know, we'd play gigs. Every time we'd do a gig, it'd be like, you know, Michael Schranker and Uli Roth. All those kind of guys would come. All the musicians would come to the gigs to see him play. Was a music- he was a musician's musician. Yeah. so But we were playing all, like, I mean, we'd sell out the clubs, but we were playing clubs. And he was very unhappy about that. And I think that's what made him never come back here again. Wow. I, I'll, I will never forget, we did one show, we did a couple shows we were opening for, like, Ace Fraley and Y&T. Yep. And I remember he, he was talking to the crowd between songs, and he said, I'll never forget this. He goes, yeah, there's a lot of opening acts on the bill tonight. And that was like a, that was a dig because he was opening for these bands. Would none of those bands? They'd all been opening for him if we were in Europe. Yeah. Yeah. Clearly. Um, yeah, he must have been pissed. He was. He was definitely pissed. I he mean,
1: he's become. He's he was such a legend back then, but a bigger legend now because we've lost him. But fuck, man, what a player!
2: Amazing. Monster. I mean, he was so good. I have to say, he was the best. I mean, my favorite I ever played with was Brian May. Because I love Queen. That's my favorite yeah. band. I love Queen. I love Brian's tone. And he's such a nice guy. I love playing... You know, you imagine you're a big Queen fan. You get to play Queen songs with Brian May. I mean, forget it. But okay. I felt the same way about Gary.
1: Yeah. So so how do you go from Gary Moore to Brian May?
2: Well, I was... In between there... Um, I was in a band called Badlands with Jakey e Lee from Ozzy's band, yep, yep. and I did the first record and the first tour. But then we had a falling out; those guys kicked me out of the band. And um, literally, literally, the week that I got fired, um, I I just called everybody I knew in the business and said I'm looking for a gig. And Doug Goldstein, who used to be our security guard with Black Sabbath, was now working with. Uh, he was co-managing uh, Great White, and he became Guns N' Roses' manager eventually. Right. But he was working for the management with Alan Niven, and I called him up. I go, hey, I'm looking for a gig. He goes, hey, I'm out with Great White. We're opening for Alice Cooper. Alice needs a drummer. I'll tell him about you. So I got an audition. Literally a week after I got fired, I auditioned for Alice, and I got the gig. Alice was, at that time, Poison was a top ten hit. Yeah. He had a platinum album. I was in his band, and boom. and I was And I did his next two tours, 90 and 91.
0: All right, and, hold it,
1: man, you you were living the ultimate rock and roll dream at the ultimate, one of the ultimate times, which obviously, kind well, of doesn't exist like that anymore, but no. you were right amongst the biggest of the big.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, I got, I mean, it was, yeah, I mean, there's times where, uh, and the, the irony of it all, to me, I always look back, every band that I played in... All the people I played I was a fan of them. I mean, I literally, I remember when I first heard Lita Ford, I was in the local band, my first band, and I heard her on the radio all the time, this song, Gotta Let like Go. And I go, wow, yep. this, because I liked Hard Rock. Oh, this is really good. I love this stuff. A friend of mine worked at her label. And I go, man, I'd like to play with Lita Ford. He goes, oh, she's got a really great drummer. And that was Randy Castillo. Yep. Well, lo and behold, later that year, like six months later, I'm her drummer. So, and then I loved Black Sabbath as a kid. Next thing you know, I'm playing with Tony, you know. So, um, and that was, you know, unfortunately, I wish I was more experienced at the time working with Tony. Uh, you know, I loved playing with because I love all those heavy riffs. I mean, nobody writes better heavy riffs than yes, that guy. yep. But I didn't know anything about the business. I just didn't know it. I didn't really know anything about anything. I were was just kind of making it up as I go along, kind of a thing. Were
1: you, were you having those moments? I know I've had these where it's just like, fuck, man, I've, I've made it. I've had a childhood dream. How many moments did you have getting to play with these people? It must have been like.
2: Well, I've always. I've never been a person that. Like, I always tell my friends, when I was a kid, I never wanted to try to go early to hang out to try to meet the band or go to hotels. and I just never was that way. Yeah. I mean, I had posters on my wall, and I bought records incessantly, and I bought every rock magazine. I mean, I always just felt like I don't want to hang out with them. I want to be them. I want to do right. what they're doing. Yeah. So my maybe my mindset was different from the get-go. I don't know. So it
1: wasn't like fanboy. It was, nah, you want to play. You want to, It was all well, about the music. I know it's
2: easy to say now, but I, I swear to God, I always thought you're going to do this, you're supposed to do this, This is what you're supposed to do. You're going to be in a band and you're going to do this. And then, I'll be honest with you, by the time I was like, say, 23, 24, I was really disillusioned because I was miserable. I was in a marriage that didn't work out and unhappy and all that. And I started thinking like, all right, you know, sometimes if change, you don't make change, it's forced upon you. No. And I just realized change was then forced upon me. I got really focused and I moved out here. And this was the prime time to be here the end of 83. Yeah. Wow. You know, I was seeing it blowing up from Cleveland when Quiet, Ride. you know, Van Halen, of course, was big. But you saw Randy Rhodes with Ozzy and then also in Quiet Ride and Doc and Motley Crue, all these bands from L.A. blowing up. I got here right when that when I got here, Motley Crue, they weren't like an arena band yet. They were playing like Santa Monica Civic. Right. Okay. So they were just blowing up. So you, you
1: know? were you were here at the height of the rock that rock and roll of that era. Yeah, just and like Sunset Strip must have been nuts, right?
2: Every night was like Mardi Gras. <laughs> As I tell people, it's literally like every every Friday and Saturday night was like walking almost like Mardi Gras in New Orleans. I mean, the streets were packed up and down either side of the street. Girls were dressed to the nines. Yeah. Every band would be out there pimping their band. You know, they have flyers printed out, trying to right. pass them on or give away tickets or whatever. And at the end of the night, the ground would be littered with all that stuff. <laughs> well, then they started passing city ordinances that you couldn't do that. Yep. And of course, if you flyer they know it was you because you're on the picture. Yeah, so, Because yeah. bands used to go around and put it all over the telephone poles and yep. street lights and all that. They made it illegal to do that so eventually that whole thing went by the wayside. But it was a great time to kind of be right in the thick of things. Yeah. And sometimes you could go down there if you got a good parking spot right out in front of like the Rainbow or the Roxy or the yeah. and those clubs. You could just sit out and sit on your car and just, you know, people watch and hang on. It was like a really fun, great scene. It's a shame that there isn't that music scene anymore oh, like that.
1: Yeah, man. Nothing like that. I mean we just we watch it in the movies now, like, God, that would have been so cool to be in that day.
2: Yeah. I feel kind of fortunate and I gotta tell you, somehow I figured it out. I I assimilated I always felt like I could adapt really easily yep. and assimilate to musical and people situations and that's what i did
1: well it sounds like to me that you you obviously had a personality too that could fit in to any situation and you you knew how to play that game as well like,
2: well not to I piss think, off the
1: artists and yeah
2: but i think i think it's like all things in life sometimes you have to you know there's an old our manager doc mcgee always says stay in your lane but i think sometimes there's you have to know what you do and what and know what you don't do yeah. know what you're there to do what your responsibilities are Look, if you start a band with a, with like-minded people and you start off all together you decide it's going to be a complete, even, equal democracy and all that, that's a different scenario. Bands that started from, you know, baby bands and then made it, like, like Kiss or Van Halen, some yep. of those bands, Queen, it's a different dynamic.
1: Yeah.
2: Once you start changing members, you have to realize... It's their, It's a business to them. They've established a business and uh, a certain point of view of how they want to conduct business and what they want to do. And you can't come in and start trying to say, "Well, I want to do it this way." You know, the, there's an old saying: If you want to do it different, go start your own band. Yeah. yeah. So if you're going to work with people or for people, I think you have to know that know what your place is and know your role. Yeah. And yeah. it's not about being a yes man or just passive. It's about being smart and going, "Hey." They hired me to be the drummer because they think I can play drums and sing, and I have the right attitude and personality, and I get how they want to do things, Yeah. and yep. I know my place, and I know to stay in my lane and do what I'm there to do. Yep. And if you do that, I always f- take the attitude, make things work for you, not against you. Yeah. Uh, yep. there, if you really want to do things your own way, it's there's no... Um, no rewards and going, oh, I sure told them and I told people to go screw themselves. Or, it's like, that's just going to get you unemployed or out of work. Yeah, yeah. I mean, unless you're a songwriter and you got all the goods, meaning you can write great tunes and sing them, and then you can control more of the dialogue of what you want to do musically. But if you're not that guy, which I'll be the first to admit that I'm not, yeah. I mean, I know what I can do and I know what I bring to a situation, but I also know what I don't do.
1: Right. So, to get back to Brian May, I mean, Man, the more, by far one of the best players on the planet. Oh, and it's super intelligent guy, right? Like mm-hmm. the guy's,
2: and a really cool guy too. Yep. Really
1: nice, really nice. Yeah, super nice. So, how long were you with Brian playing? And and you're playing all the Queen stuff too, right? Yeah, and his
2: solo stuff. <sighs> he had Man. his second solo at the time called Another World, and um, so he did a cattle call of drummers, and um, I flew over to London. Um, I was still playing with Alice Cooper. I was filling in because Alice's drummer at the time. Um, left to go fill in to help out with Megadeth. So they asked me if I could play drums um, to fill in. But I already had an audition for Brian. I knew I was going to do the tour. Yeah. I just, But I knew it wasn't going to start for a few months. So I flew over to London. I didn't tell anybody. It was another situation I didn't tell anybody. Um, ironically, how I found out, I was doing some of these Kiss fan convention or expos as a, like a guest over in Europe. And one of the fans told me, I think we were in Spain. He goes, Hey Eric, I heard Brian May on the radio today saying he needs a drummer. And I knew Cozy Powell had died. He was doing like a press jaunt and yep. kind of doing like a unplugged acoustic type stuff and Steve Ferroni was playing drums. The guy that played the oh, yeah. yeah. average white band Tom Petty. Yep. But I guess brian didn't think he was like the right rock you know brian want brian's a rock guitar yeah, player yeah. he wants a guy that's you know roger taylor cozy Powell, those or rock drummers steve ferroni's a great drummer but he's not like a hard rock no. power drummer in that style of music right. per se yeah. and i guess brian d- wanted more of a rock drummer so um I, I flew over and auditioned and and then they called me like like on a monday after i got back and said oh brian you know you got brian wants you to do the tour and he got on the phone and and uh, it's funny because you know I always like you said sometimes how do you get like not like overwhelmed or starstruck? I always thought you gotta kind of keep yourself you know act like you've been there and just be a regular guy because yeah. you know you can look, you know a lot of times I look back on some of these things and go wow that's really cool that I got to do that. But in the moment I try to just keep my head level and just kind of get down to business. So I I don't think I was trying to be too cool. But when Brian got on the phone he goes oh, okay it'll be great I look forward to playing. They go okay cool you know. And um, later on, a couple of years later, we were doing—they uh, were doing that Queen musical in the West End when they had just started *We Will Rock You*. Yep. And they were doing some promo for it, so I was going over there and playing drums for him, and sometimes with Roger as the as double drummers with Roger wow. Taylor. Yep. And they were um, uh, my friend—he works for Kiss now as one of our like he does a lot of um, PR and social media stuff. This guy Keith Larue, and Keith. Was a big fan of uh, Brian May and Queen, so he came over to see me play at the. We played at Royal Albert Hall. Uh, I think he came to that gig. Then we went. To, we had this party, and we were doing promo for We Will Rock You, and a lot of celebrities there and stuff like that. And so Keith's hanging out, talking to this. I think it was after Royal Albert Hall, right? Because I remember we were in the bar, and. He's talking to Brian, he's going, oh, when Eric got the gig, he was so excited. Queens, he loves you're his favorite guitar player. Queens' is his favorite brand. Brian goes, really? He goes, he goes, I'm so glad you told me. He goes, when I called him up to tell him that he got the gig, he seemed like, he almost seemed like he didn't care. It was like, <laughs> so there's where you go. You gotta be right. careful. It's that fine line of trying to be yeah. too cool or too calm you know, call calm a collective as yep. you, as they say. Yeah. But I was trying not to be the fanboy. Yeah, of you course. You know, because yeah. I was such a big Queen fan. Yeah. Um, but that, to me, I will say that is always going to be one of my biggest highlights ever um, to get to play with him. And then I, I got to play with Roger also. Roger was doing some um, TV show and I flew over there to play drums for him because he was singing you know he's a great singer and I remember we did Jealous Guy by John Lennon and I forget what other songs we did but he sang and I just played drums and then we did a couple gigs where they actually did it as Queen when they wanted to start coming back and doing gigs as Queen John Deacon wouldn't do it so they were using sometimes Neil Murray who played he played in Brian's solo band he was in White Snake and Gary Moore a lot of other bands great bass player and um we did this gig for Queen's Day in Amsterdam. And so Roger and Brian were both singing, and they had a couple other singers. Paul Thompson sang, who used to be, in Mike and the Mechanics. And he also, he's the one that sang, um, you know, Blinded by the Light, Yeah. Man "For yeah. Man, that guy, that voice. Wow. He was the singer also. And so I played drums, and a couple times we did double drummers. So I did a few gigs, like a Nelson Mandela thing in South Africa in Damn. 2003 or four. One of those Nelson Mandela things and so I got to play drums with, well I got to play with the, the Rhythmics and um, Beyonce, I'm trying to remember who else I played drums for, oh uh, Edge and Bono. You did? So I, yeah I played a couple, uh, which was kind of funny because at first they weren't sure if they wanted to play with the band, they wanted to play acoustically. Right. And um, so we were rehearsing down there for like two weeks for this whole big festival. And they had a lot of South African artists as well. So they had a drummer that would play with all the South African artists, and then I played with all the kind of Western music bands and right. stuff. You know what was her name? That that other girl, um, Anastasia. Yeah, Anastasia. I, I played with her too. So, and then Beyonce had her own band as well. But I played a couple of things where she sang like a duet thing, and I played drums for that. And uh, but I got to play. I'm trying to remember what I remember we played uh, Sweet Dreams and um oh with the rhythmics with your rhythmics annie lennox and, and um oh, dave stewart dave stewart yep. they came down and um i remember we, we rehearsed in this soccer stadium the night before i remember we, you know it's going <laughs> and annie lennox turned around to me when i hit those drums she just turned on and gave me a big smile because it was so <laughs> powerful because i think they're not used to usually they don't have like harder hitting rock yeah, drummers doing yeah, their gigs it's and usually the, they're great drummers but yeah. they're more studi- studio yeah. style type drummers yeah. if you will um she was really nice and she was amazing even when when she came out to sing and do the rehearsals even Beyonce and Anastasia came out and we were standing outside watching her because she she, she, she was she was I've seen like, her at
1: the ball man she's, she was like wow she's fucking amazing wow she I mean she blew Sting off the stage yeah
2: she was that's incredible I mean she's and this was rehearsal, and they're all... I mean, Beyoncé <laughs> yeah. was a big deal. as a, That was when she was solo and solo, w- yep. big deal. And what's his name, was there two cat Stevens, Yusuf, well, oh, yeah. he goes by whatever. Yep. Yusuf Islam or something, is yeah, I think yeah. that's his name. Um, And uh, and that other guy from uh, Spain, uh, or Italy, Um, who, he's kind of like a crooner kind of guy. Oh. I forget his name. He's got a one-word name. I know Brian and Roger played on his record, right? And um, I kind of had a difficulty with him because he wanted Brian and Roger to play with him at the thing, yeah. You know, because he wanted to play with the guys from Queen, yeah, which everybody always does, right? And Brian agreed to do it, but Roger's like, I don't want to play with him. And Brian's like, I got fuck. I remember Brian going, I got to fuck him. And, uh, <laughs> um,
1: was it Enrique? No, Probably
2: not no, no, no. It was. Um,
1: Alright, we're going to stop it there We're going to come back to Eric uh, next week <laughs> Some good stories, man It's when rock and roll was rock and roll, baby Back in the day when, uh, yeah He was he was doing it, big time But anyway, uh, lots of great more stories coming from Eric uh, Be safe, come back to us next week Guitar Wank, which, uh, we're working on a new website Working on new things So we're not dead in the water yet <laughs> we're still around we're just uh re-evaluating. so i've got a, f- a few things in the pipeline if you've ordered merch you're gonna have to hang on for a little bit because we are in the process of getting new merchandise and new uh basically connections there but as bruce said he's doing the videos and uh we'll be back with more stuff so uh we'll see you all next week keep an eye out for when we release these videos because we're co- oh, these uh podcasts because they're kind of all over the place at the moment and uh but we're getting them out as we can okay guys be safe uh, take care and we hope you and your family are doing fantastic in these crazy times and we will see you all next time thank you for listening catch you later